bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. You've probably heard me cover this story before, either on the Round Canada podcast or on the Hunter Conservationist podcast, or probably just aware of the issue with invasive wild pigs in Canada. I think one of, I think it was like episode four of the Hunter Conservationist podcast, Curtis and I actually went to the University of Saskatchewan and met with Dr. Ryan Brook in his office. He's kind of like Canada's leading uh, researcher on the problem of invasive wild pigs spreading throughout Canada and kind of the issue around them and their impacts on agriculture as well as uh, impacts on native ecosystem and, and wildlife. So one of the things that's really clear from Dr. Brooks' research, not to say that it's without controversy, there's actually people in Saskatchewan where there's the highest density of feral pigs um, discount his work because they don't even think they exist because they say they never seen them. Anyways, one of the things that's very clear from Dr. Brooks' work is the clusters of feral pigs or invasive wild pigs, whatever you want to call them, uh, are clearly across Canada are clearly centered around geographic areas where there was wild boar farming. And the relationship between wild boar farms and clusters of, in, of feral populations in the wild are because of escaped individuals um, or sounders from captivity or farming operations that have simply given up on trying to make a dollar off of wild boar farming and have turned them loose. So they have also discovered that um, wild pigs can carry the CWD prion and it's viable when they poop it out. So they've now, science has now determined that the feral pig is a vector for CWD meaning that it can pick up a CWD prion that was dropped by the saliva or urine of a deer, say at a corn bait station, and then ingest it and carry it somewhere else on the landscape and deposit it, of which if a deer comes in contact with it, then you can kind of leapfrog uh, the incidence of CWD across the province with spreading invasive wild pigs. I, I think uh, invasive wild pigs are, if I remember, we might be at about two. They occupy a range in Canada of about 2 million square kilometers. Uh, the highest density populations are Saskatchewan. Um, then as you come west, fairly established in Alberta, few little reports and endemic populations in BC When you go the other direction, uh, Manitoba uh, has them and then they were starting to kind of like work their way over towards uh, Ontario and and carrying on eastward. So it's been like Saskatchewan is kind of like ground zero and then gone from there as well as parts of Alberta because there was wild boar farming. So there's a a movement to develop a national invasive pig strategy. Uh, Provinces are starting to put into place uh, their provincial invasive wild pig strategies. One of the things that Dr. Brooks' work has has shown, and he he says this is actually a phenomenon across the world, that hunting as a tool to eliminate or eradicate invasive or feral pigs does not work and in cases from across the world actually hunting has made the spread of feral wild pigs worse because as hunters start to pursue them shoot at them you know get one pig out of a group or something like that they're the pigs are incredibly smart and so they start to get pushed from a 
geographic area and they with hunting pressure they start to push out which is one of the the causes of wild pigs expanding their range is they're being pressured pressured through hunting is is one reason expanding populations and looking for new territories is another and then the other thing that happens is under hunting pressure uh, the wild pigs become um, more nocturnal so then the ability to hunt them trap them whatever uh, even monitor them becomes harder so in alberta they are actively trapping and trying to eradicate their populations of feral wild pigs a proposal was recently put forward in the Clearwater County in Alberta to develop a county prohibition on wild boar farming. And the Clearwater County administrators actually voted against the proposal to ban wild boar farming. So it's kind of interesting. So, you know, there, the, the wild boars are farmed. Um, they're a fantastic, you know, um, what do they call them? Exotic game animal wild meat that can be commercially sold. So there's a economic value for them for our farming industry. However, they are hard to contain. They can escape. Um, there's all this history around that that, like, that I was just explaining. One of the big, big dangers that the Canadian pork producers talk about is the feral wild pigs. If, if they get the African swine flu into the wild feral population in Canada, then they can spread that like wildfire across the country. And as feral pigs come close to a pork producing farm, then the chance of transmitting African swine flu to domestic pork becomes a serious, serious risk to the pork industry because essentially the entire population of the domestic pigs that become infected have to be destroyed. Kind of like the bird flu and chickens. Probably heard that story. Now in 2019 in Alberta was the end of the grace period which the Alberta government had imposed an electric fence standard for wild boar uh, farms. The standard was, or is now, for like full containment. So wild boars have to be fully fenced with a 4,000 volt electric fence, which has to be buried at least half a meter into the ground. So these pigs can burrow under a fence in a matter of like minutes like so overnight you know farmer's sleeping he comes out all his pigs are gone they can burrow underneath and they can also jump gosh what was dr brooke telling me i think they can jump up to like 15 feet or something like that they can like a white-tailed deer they can just like clear over over fences and then they're gone so anyways you know i'm kind of ah god this is such a this is such a tough one you know, um, so they got this like state-of-the-art practice, um, 4,000 volt electric fence uh, for, you know, the wild boars. Um, farmers can farm them and make money That's and, and provide food for people. That's what we want farmers to do. You know, there's risks to all types of farming, uh, animals escaping diseases you know one of the biggest ones is the transfer of tuberculosis from cattle to elk and bison and then from elk and bison back to cattle which is why they do the culls of bison down in yellowstone when they leave the national parks because they have a um uh like a, an incident rate of tuberculosis which the ranchers don't want transferred back to the cows alberta has a similar concern in the ranching community with elk with tb and transferring it back so, so there's all these inherent risks to wild animals and ecosystems because of farming uh, ranching animals but we have to grow food for people and alberta saskatchewan and manitoba are our heartlands you know where we grow our crops and we raise our animals so you know i always like to put wildlife first and i always 
you know, stand up for it. And I tend to look at every uh, issue through the lens of how does this impact wildlife and their habitat. But, you know, in, in this case, I'm not necessarily like completely against wild boar farming. If the standards of protection are the best that they could possibly be and animals are tagged and they're recovered if they get out like like all these protective mechanisms you know what was happening before you know was sort of like no standards on fences and just kind of like shoddy fences and pigs were coming and going and leaving and part of the issue in Canada is that there is no standards uh, and no understanding of the level of pig farming that goes on at the hobby scale um, side of things so my little six acres here, if I decided to have four or five or six pigs <clears throat> here, there's really nobody, like they're not registered. I'm not registered as a pig farm. Nobody knows what my standards and qualifications are and whether I've just got some string around my property to keep keep the pigs in and they get loose. So so that that's, that's a big black box out there and this whole issue of feral wild pigs and the risk of African swine flu is the hobby farms. So, you know, here's a case where Alberta is actively implementing a control strategy of trapping and, and eradicating the wild feral populations, but because it's an agriculture province, they've also recognized the need to grow food for people and they brought in this 4,000 bolt electric fence requirement. So, you know, I, I, I'm okay with, you know, with that, I guess. Um, Brian would probably shudder if he heard me saying that. But I mean, the, this this is with all these these stories that I talk about. It's it's sort of like there's the there's the win lose outcomes, and then there's win win outcomes, and then there's win 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 outcomes. And I think when it's a conservation issue that's up against a farming, urban lifestyle, um, protecting you know, people and pets and all this kind of stuff, we have to find these win-win solutions or win-win-win solutions if there's multiple uh, people involved rather than this just, well, then just, you know, ban farming to, to prevent, you know, this or whatever. It's, gosh, that's just so hard, you know, to sell nowadays that one, one person or one group loses uh, so that another can win. Not to say that it can't, that shouldn't be the case if the risks can't be controlled or mitigated or if all precautions are taken place, the inherent risks of, the, of a slight failure is so catastrophic that, you know, it's just not worth taking the risks to try to farm, you know, or grow something that's just like too dangerous. So anyways, oh, yeah, complicated story, but Alberta's trying. Uh, I give them, I give them that, and I don't know. Following all of these feral pig stories around the country, I don't know of any other jurisdiction in Canada that has the electric fence and below ground requirements for pig farms that Alberta has. So, hopefully, they work. So a story coming out of British Columbia to do with bats. I like, I like everything to do with wildlife and, and ecosystems. And we don't hunt bats, but like whatever. It's just, it's conservation. And that's first and foremost where my heart lies. So this is, this is an unfortunate news. So the white nose disease, fungus disease, has been confirmed in a bat population in British Columbia about four hours west of where I live in Cranbrook uh, over in the Grand Forks area. So white nose fungus is a disease introduced into bat populations in North America. They figure through a port of entry uh, of some kind of a shipment or whatever that had the fungus in it that came into New York in 2006. It's been spreading and devastating uh, wild bat populations in North America where colonies have declined between 90 and 98 percent. So very unfortunate. 
I think last year I covered a story about it being found in Alberta and then kind of like, oh, is it going to make it over, you know, through the Rockies and, and whatnot. So what's interesting about this is it has been moving from the east to the west. So given that I'm pretty darn sure there was a case, some cases picked up in Alberta. Now, it, it leapfrogged from there to the center of British Columbia. Like it didn't, it should have shown up logically, it should have shown up in bat populations near where I live in the East Kootenai and then the West Kootenai and then over into the, you know, the Okanagan and, and so on and so on. But it was, I mean, it, it depends where people are looking for it as well. Uh, but there's a lot of work that goes in on a bat conservation in, where, where I live as well and no reports of it. So anyways, where I'm going with this is it makes me think that it was transported by people. Um, not on purpose, obviously, but somebody had been somewhere uh, hiking, camping, or the issue here that I want to talk about is this recreational activity of caving or splunking, as, it, as it's called, right? The people that like to go in, you know, fit through the little cracks and stuff and go explore caves. Well, this is bad habitat. Now, if you like to travel around the country and explore these caves, you're, you're coming in contact with bat guano when you're in these caves, most likely, whether they're small or large. Then it's on your gear. And then you get in your car and you drive six hours somewhere and you go explore another cave. And bingo, you've now just transferred this fungus to a bat colony that can then um, spread throughout the bat colony. So what the fungus does, the mechanism, the way it kills, is when the bats are hibernating, they're conserving energy and they're in these clusters also to keep warm. The fungus starts growing on the bat's face and then it causes the bats to come out of hibernation and because it's bugging them and then they start to burn more calories. Uh, they're not conserving energy and then essentially they die in hibernation. They like freeze to death. And then in the close contact, of course, the fungus is, is jumping from bat to bat to bat to bat. Like they literally, like they hang in the caves. They're touching each other, right? They're in there like clusters, like, like a swarm. And so that's why the, the fungus in hibernating, um, in bat hibernacula is so devastating. Like 90, 98% of the bats get wiped out is because they're in, in these clusters and it's spreading while the bats are hibernating. So geez, unfortunate story. I don't know what can be done to control it from spreading. Cause then if you have bats now that are flying around and maybe intermixing with other colonies and it's going to spread, but it really comes back to, uh, this, recreational activity of splunking. Now it really makes me think if this whole entire activity, now that there's white nose fungus here or anywhere else where, where they're, they're dealing with it, do we need to examine this recreational activity? Uh, what are the practices, um, you know, permits, licensing, caves, uh, you know, which ones they go in, which one are high value, bad habitat, you know, so on and so on. And I, I question one, l let's find out if it's actually a risk, you know, do some studies on, on Splunker's gear and, you know, some swabs and see whether or not, or, or, or document, you know, where they're traveling to, or they, you know, sort of like the invasive muscles has your boat come from a region that has mussels and are you traveling to a region that doesn't have mussels? That's what the, the, the boat check stations are in the summertime, right? Like they're inspecting for the transport of boats that have come from high risk areas to um, areas that are free of invasive mussels. So maybe that's something needs to be looked at for spelunking. What a weird name. I don't know why they just didn't call it caving, spelunking. Maybe the first person that wiggled their way through a little cave or whatever and invented the sport plummeted like hundreds of feet down some shaft into a underground aquifer. All they heard was blunk. Are you okay there, Daryl?
Um, okay, so switching species to coyotes. Um, a few years ago, I read a book by Dan Flores called Coyote America. Um, pretty interesting. Learned a lot about coyotes and their relationships to humans and their biology and stuff. So uh, short, short and sweet of it is they figure that coyotes have been living with human beings since the Pleistocene when they came across the Bering Land Bridge when humans did. The relationship between coyotes living in close proximity of humans has, they essentially think like it's how coyotes evolved. So this whole, these other stories that I've been covering last year about coyotes in the urban areas and biting people and stuff, I'm, I, I've almost looked at it like it's not a, a new thing that's happening. Coyotes have evolved to live in with people. Um, the other interesting thing that Dan Flores said in his book, uh, I think I've talked about this on other episodes, if you call them a coyote, you tend to be someone that supports the idea of hunting and trapping and controlling their numbers. If you call them a coyote, it tends to come from people that don't agree with coyote hunting or trapping. Oh, there you go. I just gave it away. <laughs> coyote. Um, coyote. So the, the new term is um, they're being uh, branded as song dogs. Um, to try to kind of soften the language around them as a species, uh, which is kind of interesting. So anyways, a couple developments going on with um, coyotes in Canada. So last year, there was the big story out of Ontario with a sports store that had a killing contest for coyotes. Uh, all these categories and prizes and, you know, money and all this kind of stuff. It was controversial because... Opponents to the killing contests uh, said that uh, Ontario law actually prohibits them because it falls under the definition of a bounty. It falls under the legal definition of encouraging uh, someone to hunt for gain. Um, so you're encouraging people to go out and shoot a coyote and come in and uh, get 20 bucks or, you know, or, or, or whatever, whatever the, the, it was. So this was a sports store in Ontario that was trying to generate business. And so these uh, coyote contests or killing contests were one of the ways that it pulled people into the store. And, you know, they went out and they hunted for the weekend. They came back. And so anyways, uh, the stories that covered this on a couple winters ago, uh, Alberta conservation officers looked into it. They said, no, everything seems okay, except for one category. One of the categories of the killing contest was a cash prize for, if I remember this right, for the largest coyote, coyote. And that was deemed to be a bounty. <clears throat> so they had to pull that out of the killing contest. Well, this year, two groups, um, um, Coyote Watch Canada and the, I think the Animal Alliance of Canada, uh, I think the Animal Alliance of Canada, because they're like lawyers, they took this to Ontario court to say, we need a judge to decide if or not, if these killing, this killing contest in Ontario was a violation of um, Ontario law. So that court case just wrapped up uh, about a week ago. And basically what the judge's ruling was is the judge, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, the judge, the judge kind of said, yeah, it seems like the killing contest is potentially a violation of those sections of Ontario law. However, the Ontario government investigated it and chose not to press charges. So the judge sort of didn't dismiss the case, but that was the conclusion. So some might see that as a win, you know, for the sports store and the killing contest. <clears throat> I've spoken a little bit with folks that were involved in this from the other perspective of wanting the coyote killing contest stopped. They didn't see that as a as a uh, a loss in court because the judge had confirmed 
you know, or, or made a pretty strong signal that, yeah, this doesn't look like it, you know, adheres to the law. But it's up to government to interpret and apply the law and press charges. Not knowing a lot about how all this stuff kind of works in a legal perspective, the fact that a third party brought forward the court case might not have the standing because they have, like, they're not one of the parties. They're not they're not the Ontario government and they're not the sports store. So let's say that the Ontario government did charge the sports store with this killing contest saying that you're violating these sections of the Ontario Wildlife Act. Then that person appealed it and it went to court. Now a judge would have to decide, is the defendant uh, guilty or not guilty of the charges? And then they would have to weigh the law against the particular circumstances around that killing contest. Then the judge might have said, no, we're upholding the charges. Uh, I see this as a violation of section blah, 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 blah of the Ontario Wildlife Act. And then that's it. That's, that's the end of killing contests in uh, Ontario. You know, um, okay, so now there's there's another issue that's layered on top of this. So just recently, some municipalities in Alberta, uh, sorry, Saskatchewan, came out with a not necessarily a killing contest, but a bounty on coyotes. So if you kill a coyote in any of these jurisdictions uh, that were ever eligible, and you brought in the four paws, you got twenty bucks. And so there's a huge outrage going on about this uh, across Canada as being seen as like inhumane and wanton killing and, and all this kind of stuff. So, gosh, these are, so I'll, I'll, be, I'll be completely honest. Um, I do not like the idea of paid killing contests. Uh, I don't think it helps with the ethos of hunting that it comes across to the non-hunting public as killing for the sake of killing. The animals are simply targets. Whoever has the most at the end of the contest period gets money. Down in the United States, there's places where they have these killing contests and, of course, more, more coyote pop populations, bobcats, and more hunters going out on the land. And it's like you see these pictures of, like, like, trailers like utility trailers just heaped with dead animals after you know the contest period or whatever and then when it's all over and the prizes are allocated and the top winner and all this kind of stuff somebody just drives a trailer off out and and dumps all these carcasses of these dead animals on the ground and then of course people are finding these and taking all these pictures like i mean like i i don't and and this is where this whole thing with killing contests is controversial in the hunting community because as soon as you say as a hunter or a trapper, these killing contests are pretty egregious. Like they they fire up a lot of controversy about what hunting is in the eyes of the non-hunting public. And it's like, yeah, that's not what we that's not what all hunters are like this. And it causes a lot of broad brush bad publicity on the hunting community as as a whole as soon as you as a hunter and i've had this happen to me you voice an objective to a killing contest then hunters attack you saying well you're against predator control and predator management and look here the wolves are you know doing this to the elk and, all. and it's like whoa 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 no i and i do i i support predator hunting i support trapping um, as long as the animal is utilized, the fur gets utilized, I'm okay with that. I do it myself through trapping. So there's the issue of do you support, you know, regulated hunting and trapping? Yes, and I believe you can. Are you against this idea of publicly advertising, simply going out and killing the animals to see if you can get a prize? They're different issues in my mind, but it's divisive within the hunting community as well. And I think I'll, you know, I'll, 
I'll, I'll uh, revert back to something that my good friend Robbie Kroger from Blood Origins always asks, is this act helping or hurting hunting as seen through the eyes of a non-hunter? I believe the whole concept of killing contests as seen through the eyes of a non-hunter is hurting hunting. Not just hurting predator hunting, it's hurting deer hunting, moose hunting, everything, right? Because it's, it's, it's just this broad label of, of hunting. Now, the Saskatchewan story. So my understanding is, you know, the prairie provinces are heavily altered ecosystems because of agriculture and crops. With that is an unnatural explosion of rodents. And with that is an unnaturally supported population and a density of coyotes. I, I think I learned from, hmm, maybe it was Doug Chesson from the Fur Institute of Canada when I had him on the podcast, uh, or maybe from the Alberta Trappers Association. Anyways, I learned from somebody from the trapping industry. It's like 70% of all the coyotes trapped in Canada come from like Southern Saskatchewan or something uh, like that, or Southern Alberta and Southern Saskatchewan, 70% of all of them that are taken. Their fur prices are really depressed right now. Trapping in Southern Alberta and Southern Saskatchewan was also part of controlling the 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 numbers of coyotes that are living on these landscapes, these altered landscapes, and just the issues of them bumping into, you know, um, people's homes and farms and, all, you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, it's always debatable about whether hunting and trapping is actually reducing that conflict. But anyways, you know, some of these, these high volume coyote trappers in Alberta and Saskatchewan can get like three, four, 500 coyotes a winter. Well, they're not worth much right now, like significantly depressed on the fur market. So I can't help but surmise that the Saskatchewan municipalities want coyote removal happening at a fairly intense level. Trapping is down because of the fur prices so this this bounty of $20 for four paws isn't necessarily designed to encourage people just to go out and wantonly kill a coyote in a field, walk up to it, cut its paws off, and, and leave it laying there and not utilize the fur. What it almost seems like is that it's designed to help augment what the trappers, the high-volume trappers, are getting because when you case out fur off of uh, any fur bears, you don't keep the paws. So generally the, the, uh, the legs are taken off somewhere like mid-arm uh, sort of or, or at an elbow or, or knuckle joint. And then it's the case, the fur's cased out and they're just the little nubs of where the, the legs are. They don't need the paws. So if a trapper would say normally get 150 bucks for a coyote and they're only getting 50 right now, but you can bring in the paws, which you already are just going to toss out by properly casing a coyote for the fur market and get another 20 bucks for that. It seems like it's designed to help the trappers. I don't know this for sure. I'm just trying to put my experiences and knowledge together and, and um, maybe figure out what's going on. Either way, the optics of publicly advertising a bounty for four paws off of a coyote it does not come across to the non-hunting public very well. It really, in my mind, can easily, without even thinking too hard, come across as just kill these things if you see it in a field, cut its four feet off and bring it in and you'll get 20 bucks. And you get a two or three of them, you can get a case of beer, right? Um, so, yeah, that just... I don't know, this, uh, again, is this helping or hurting hunting is seen through the eyes of a non-hunter. Uh, obviously, right now, the bad publicity uh, or the pressure around people are lobbying Saskatchewan government now and stuff to, to outlaw this. Uh, it's complicated. Uh, hopefully, we'll dig into it a little bit more um, from some spokespeople uh, in, on the Hunter Conservationist podcast maybe later this spring. Uh, so a couple episodes ago, I was telling you about the story about the horses in 
central British Columbia, the wild horses that were just shot. I think, what was it, uh, 13 of them or something like that from this these uh, wild populations. So, and then, and then I was sort of saying like, you know, like what's naturalized and what's invasive feral and these horses have been here for hundreds of years and they mean something to indigenous people, but they can have impacts on forage and browse for ungulates and possibly somebody just got upset by that and said, well, they're going to take um, feral animal population control into their, un into their own hands. Don't know, speculating on that. Anyways, the, uh, so that was kind of like becomes a philosophical discussion about horses uh, in North America. They were here in the Pleistocene and apparently they went extinct. The whole previous arguments about the relationship between North American indigenous people um, and horses was based on the concept that it was the Spaniards that brought the horses that ended up being introduced to Native Americans and became part of their culture over, I think, you know, the Spaniards, I think, brought the horses in like the 15 or 1600s. And, you know, they, the, the prevailing theory was, is that's how Native Americans um, culture developed around the horse, especially the Plains people. Anyways, after I covered that story, interestingly enough, Google's listening, and I had some some stuff show up in my newsfeed about this relationship between wild horses in North America and indigenous people. So a new paper would just studied in the journal or published in the Journal of Science about wild horses in North America and their use and relationship with Native Americans is putting the the, the relationship between Native Americans and their use of wild horses about a hundred years earlier than previously thought. So like a century earlier, there's oral records uh, being documented through elders in various Native American tribes in the U.S. by scientists that are pinpointing the use and relationship to horses in North America a hundred years before the Spaniards kind of would have introduced them. So this is starting to kind of break down this conventional narrative about when horses came to be in indigenous communities in the American West. So apparently these researchers have said that Plains people uh, have been rejecting this narrative that it was the Spaniards that gave them the horse and that their relationship goes pre-contact, pre-European contact. So this was an interesting paper. Um, so the, this paper that I read uh, referenced a PhD thesis on this subject that was done by a lady, I think it was published in 2017, uh, that in her paper she argued that it, the indigenous horse of the Americas survived the Ice Age and that North American Plains people were in contact, not domesticated, but cultivated wild horses and had a relationship with them through the Pleistocene before European contact. Then, again, Google listening, because I've been talking about this story, I came across another story from Canada here. And it's about the Ojibwe spirit horse. In northern Ontario. Never heard of this before. This is super interesting and in how it relates to this. I mean, I think what it's relating to is the question of are horses native to North America? Did they go extinct in the Pleistocene? So if there are feral wild populations living on the land today, are they supposed to be there part of the ecosystem or are they invasive feral species? That, to me, is the central question here from a conservation perspective. So anyways, the Ojibwe spirit horse um, was, the, the, my understanding of it was in northern Ontario, the Ojibwe people had talked about a horse. It was in northern Ontario. 
that they knew were wild. They had a special relationship with them, but they also figured out how to use them to haul stuff for them. I think one of the accounts I read was using the horses to haul um, catches of fish from the wintertime ice fishing and hauling them back to, to their communities. So when the European settlers arrived, they discovered these wild horses as well, considered them to be a nuisance, and then started eradicating um, these, these wild horses. In 1977, there were only four of these Ojibwe spirit horses left, four mares, and they were on the island, uh, on an island in um, Lac Lacoy in northern, northwestern Ontario. And the government decided that these horses were a risk because of diseases, yada, 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 and they were going to go eradicate them all. A group of Ojibwe men then went out and did this um, operation to catch these four mares and get them out of the 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 way of the Ontario government and they brought them and started selectively and breeding them in captivity and apparently their numbers are back up to like 180 now in Canada and they've been managing the genetics and you know in the way you would properly breed a species back into existence the interesting thing is is some of the research on these Ojibwe spirit horses the DNA tests show that they are a separate breed of horses than the ones introduced to North America by Europeans. So it's possible the Ojibwe spirit horse was a remnant of the Pleistocene horse which was native to the North American continent. So interesting, interesting. I mean I talked about this before, it's kind of like Okay, the horses in British Columbia that I was talking about that they got shot and the feral horse populations there, they're of European descendant. They're, they're most likely not a distant relative of the Pleistocene um, native horse. However, they're living on the landscape and performing the same role in the ecosystem as what the Pleistocene horses would have done. Would have done. So philosophically... Are they a natural species on the landscape or not unnatural? I talked about the same story about the bison in northern British Columbia and the hunt and stuff on them. The natural subspecies of bison was the wood bison in northern BC and northern Alberta. The ones that are there now are not the genetically pure wood bison. They're a plains bison that escaped from a ranching operation. However, they're living in an ecosystem which was in the historic range of bison in BC and they're fulfilling the role of a bison in that ecosystem. So are they non-native or are they native? Um, philosophical questions, but pretty interesting stuff. So anyways, I mean that stuff on horses uh, kind of ties into that story I was talking about a couple episodes ago. So uh, anyways, kind of cool. Uh, I like that kind of stuff especially when archaeology and uh, that type of stuff brings information forward that is completely relevant to, you know, like a conservation issue today. I, I just, I love that. So number of episodes ago, I also talked about this um, idea of the indigenous protected conservation areas. And I've covered a couple of stories where a First Nations in British Columbia had declared an area of their territory as an IPCA. There was the, I think the Diné people in the Yukon had also declared uh, an IPCA in the Yukon. So since then, a new First Nations in BC, the Simquois First Nation, has come out and declared part of its traditional territory in the Rocky Mountains near BC Alberta border as a indigenous protected conservation area. It's in what's called the Roche Valley. It's uh, just attaches to and it's just north of Wellsgate Provincial Park, a little bit north and west of Mount Robson uh, Provincial Park as well. 
And so they're now saying it's protected from logging and other resource extraction activities because of the importance of that valley in their territory to the Simcoe First Nations people. I talked about this before, how this is a really new development of First Nations in Western Canada declaring areas under their nation's laws as a protected area versus provincial laws and where this is all going to lead to. So in the CBC news story, I read about this uh, new uh, protected area in the Rush Valley. The CBC reported this. In an emailed statement to CBC News, BC's Minister of Water, Land and Resource Stewardship said the Simcoe First Nations IPCA declaration won't change how the province currently uses the land in Rush Valley, but the province is willing to work with the community in preserving the land. <laughs> so that's a pretty strong statement from the BC government status quo. We will continue to develop uh, the resource industries in the Rosh Valley and we will um, continue to uphold our legal obligation to consult the Simcoe First Nations prior to a statutory decision and mitigate uh, or accommodate any impacts to their rights and title in the Rosh Valley. So interesting development there. Um, so I've covered lots of stories about endangered caribou in Canada and everything that's been going on, um, you know, to try to recover and protect and the federal species at risk act and conflict with what provinces are doing and continuing to log and develop an endangered caribou habitat. So anyways, there's been a new scientific study that was just released on the boreal caribou in the Northwest Territories. And it's kind of interesting, uh, it's not necessarily bad news. The scientists looked at, it was a modeling exercise of the boreal caribou in the Northwest Territories Tega Plains ecosystem and said with climate change, what's gonna happen to the boreal caribou's habitat? Interestingly enough, they showed areas of boreal caribou habitat that will probably disappear with climate change then they showed areas where it would be unchanged, but then also areas that currently aren't good, isn't good boreal caribou habitat with climate change would become good habitat for the boreal caribou in the Northwest Territories. So it, that's why it's not bad news. And when I looked at the map, it looked like actually a net gain for the boreal caribou in the Northwest Territories. The amount of habitat that would be lost because of climate change versus what would be gained would be a net increase in boreal caribou habitat suitability uh, habitat, suitable habitat for the boreal caribou. So kind of interesting. Now the question would be is would the boreal caribou actually shift their behavioral patterns and, and you know, use new, new habitat? Uh, versus staying true to their traditional, you know, territories, um, you know, or, or their traditional range, their traditional migratory movements, winter range, summer range, calving grounds, those sorts of things. So uh, kind of interesting there. Uh, I also tend to cover stories once in a while on, you know, fines that are levied against uh, hunters. They're not good news stories. They don't tend to paint the hunting community, you know, as being well uh, or, or very well, but they're, they're, a, they're a tiny, tiny fraction of what goes on that happens out there. They tend to get a lot of uh, publicity because it is a bad news story against hunting. I do like to cover them mostly from the perspective that I think people that support hunting like to hear that when someone screws up in hunting purposely, that the law brings the full force of the hammer down on these folks. I think that is that is a win for hunters. It is a satisfaction to hunters to know that poachers are being hammered. So in Manitoba, two hunting outfitters were fined thousands of dollars and they lost their licenses to be outfitter. 
after a four-year investigation and numerous violations of the Wildlife Act in Manitoba. So the uh, owners of the Royal Elk Outfitting pled guilty to 15 counts of the Wildlife Act violation. They received $10,000 fine, lost their outfitting license. The owner of South Park Outfitters pleaded guilty to 11 counts, got a $2,000 fine, and lost their op uh, hunting out outfitters licenses. What was going on, I, I understand, is that their American clients were coming up, uh, seemed to be mostly related to spring black bear hunting. They were killing bears and then taking bears back across in the U.S. or trying to smuggle bears across into the U.S. that didn't have tags. So uh, the one story I read was a hunter that had killed two bears and only one of them had their tag on it when um, boarders inspected the shipment going across. So in the U.S., they have the Lacey Act, which is a act which will punish hunters in the United States for trying to uh, import uh, poached animals. So two of the American clients from these outfitters got fined in the United States for doing this. And apparently this was the first case of a hunter trying to bring back an illegally killed bear into the U.S. from, uh, from Canada. And so the Lacey Act uh, dropped on the U.S. hunters. So the second hunter um, was obtained their other license from a false name in order to kill a second black bear that they weren't legally entitled to using another name and another license. So those two hunters got $7,505,000 fines and a one-year suspension of their hunting licenses in the United States. A taxidermist in the United States was also fined $730 for their involvement, uh, apparently lying uh, over the legitimacy of these um, these bears. Pretty interesting. So those are pretty severe penalties and, and good on Manitoba for doing that. In Northern Ontario, a man received a lifetime hunting ban and a $5,000 fine for having been found to have 91 grouse in his possession, 76 grouse over the legal limit of 15. A lifetime ban for killing 91 grouse, or 76 illegal grouse, basically. I don't know. if I think the whole entire um, bag would be considered illegal. If you're allowed 15 and you had 91, you have 91 illegal gross. Not that you have 76 illegal gross. I think that's how it would work, is because you're allowed 15, but if you have 16, you have 16 illegal gross, not one illegal gross. I, I think that's how it works. I don't know. I have to ask a law enforcement officer on that one. Anyways, he had a shit ton more gross than he was supposed to, got a lifetime hunting ban out of it. So doesn't make hunters look good, but I think the fact is, this is a poacher, and he got a lifetime hunting ban, and I think that's what people want, is the heavy hammer approach. Pretty heavy hammer here. So uh, good good on Ontario for, for, for doing that. So a uh, bit of stuff on uh, firearms developments going on in Canada. So both the province of Alberta and Saskatchewan have recently passed their own amendments to their provincial firearms legislation, which is specifically designed to allow the province provinces to make decisions under their provincial firearms act to block federal legislation, mostly in the confiscation of firearms from Alberta and Saskatchewan residents. The provinces have now put in their own legislation that's going to basically block the federal government from coming in and trying to take the residents' firearms, probably the ones under Bill C-71. One of the things that the Alberta has Alberta has recently done with their new firearms legislation is they have a provision to prevent municipalities from banning gun ownership in a municipality. So one of the changes to the Federal uh, Firearms Act a few years ago is the federal government gave powers to municipalities to have municipal 
firearm bans, especially handguns. So for example, if the city of Vancouver or any of the jurisdictions down there said, we passed a municipal law that says you cannot live in our municipality and possess a handgun, even if you legally own it through um, the Federal Firearms Act, the federal government gave the municipalities the power to then say you can't live in a municipality and own and store a firearm. So Alberta's come out and said, sorry, we're not going to allow municipal governments to do that. Pretty controversial, but um, kind of shows you what's going on in this country in this fight over making communities safer uh, by taking firearms away from law-abiding citizens. Uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan are very fiercely standing up for their citizens. Another story about caribou coming out of Nunavut. So there was kind of a controversial um, decision made by the Nunavut government a while ago to support um, mining development in um, certain areas in Nunavut, which were known as caribou calving grounds. Recently, the Nunavut government made a submission um, to the Nunavut Planning Commission and uh, on its draft uh, Nunavut land use plan, and they reversed their decision on endorsing mining development in the Caribou Calving Grounds. And the, the, the statement that I read from the minister uh, of, or like the premier of Nunavut, said they had listened to their people and the hunting community groups who were opposed to the mining development. And so the Nunavut government reversed its endorsement of mining in uh, caribou calving grounds in Nunavut. So it, it was that's pretty interesting. I don't see this as they're being accused of flip-flopping and stuff by the media. And it's like, oh, it's no. I mean, it's like governments are doing what they're supposed to doing. They 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 want mining for economic development, but they're listening to their people that say, we're not willing to take the risk in caribou calving grounds. And I love this statement here. I'll read it out. It's a quote out of the CBC stories that I read. Calving grounds are very important for caribou. Um, and that was said by the spokesman uh, for the Spence Bay Hunters and Trappers Association in Nunavut. They um, welcome the government's new position on not endorsing mining development in the calving grounds. Uh, the spokesperson went on to say, we always said that we are not farmers. We're hunters and gatherers, so we need caribou and wildlife. That's our livelihood, our way of life. We need to protect our livestock. So <laughs> pretty interesting position for sure. Um, skipping over to Vancouver Island. So Vancouver Island uh, is a, and the lower mainland in British Columbia, is a conservation success story, primarily from hunters' dollars, of reintroducing and, and, and bolstering the population of Roosevelt elk to the point from being a severe conservation concern to now multiple wildlife management units on the island and on the lower mainland have sustainable hunts for Roosevelt elk. However, the elk population's growing, hunting opportunities are increasing, but the conflict with agriculture operators is increasing. So there's a farmer in the Cowichan Valley on the island says they're losing, they're, the elk are taking up residence on their farmland and it's having a huge impact on their farming operation. The one uh, statement I read is that this farmer would normally pull four crops a year off their land, but because of the elk coming on and uh, chewing everything down and, you know, just all the activity being on the fields, they're only able to get three crops off now. Uh, there's a scientist from the University of Alberta that's studying the relationship between the Roosevelt elk and the farmlands, and they're coming and going, and they're 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 moving forward to look for mitigation measures to prevent Roosevelt elk from camping on uh, farmlands uh, in in the Cowichan Valley. They're going to start testing some like predator deterrence and these these sorts of things on keeping the elk off. 
I don't know how successful they're going to be. Gosh, elk are big. They're incredibly aggressive. Uh, I have them around my property and they come in at nighttime and they just like literally like yank stuff out of the ground and whatnot if they decide they want it or, 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 or whatever. And, you know, fences aren't a big deterrent to them unless they're 12 feet tall. And so I don't know what, what the, uh, what they would plan to do, you know, for, for predator deterrent. One of the ones I heard was like, using calls so that the elk think that there's, I don't know, like wolves or something on the farmlands and whether that would keep them away. I'd be interested to know that for sure. But I think at the end of the day, if you don't want elk on your farmland, um, the it's expensive, but the best way is a 12 foot elk fence is what we call them here in Southern BC. Finally, a story, uh, last story here coming out of Manitoba. Uh, this was a change to Alberta or Manitoba's waterfowl um, hunting seasons that came through the new provincial waterfowl moder modernization strategy. This is not sitting well with American waterfowl hunters. So what the new regulation says, uh, basically, as I understand it, it does a couple of things. American hunters can no longer freely come to Manitoba and hunt as a freelance hunter. They will have to go through an outfitter. Changes have also been made to limit the number of clients that outfitters can have under their care at any one given time. So this has been an issue that's been go going on in Manitoba for decades. A sore point to resident Manitoban waterfowl hunters is what's been happening is is over the decades more and more and more American hunters were coming up freelance waterfowl hunters because they can they can just come up and um, buy a non-resident license uh, and the waterfowl permit and away they go as long as they can get access to private uh, land or they can go to the refuges so what's been happening is the outfitting industry has been growing around this growing American demand to come and hunt in Manitoba and outfitters and, and from what I understand, possibly American hunters are buying the rights, lease, leasing and purchasing private land or leasing the exclusive rights to pri access to private land for running commercial hunting operations. Uh, this is a way that the outfitters are guaranteeing uh, hunts for their clients is by locking up private land. So then, of course, once you've got a lease on it, then a Manitoba resident person couldn't come up, knock on the farmhouse and say, hey, could I hunt geese on your land? They're, they're being, uh, they would be locked out of it because there's a legal agreement in place. So Manitoba residents are having less and less access to um, private land. Now, like there's big duck camps being built, um, land manipulation, like like large scale baiting operation to lure ducks off of public land onto the private land. So of course that's impacting residents that are trying to hunt on public lands. And there's there's also some I don't quite quite understand this. If you're from Manitoba and you know know more a bit more, please reach out to me. Um, but there's something to do with, I don't know if it's the outfitters that lease uh, hunting blinds on either private or refuge land. And the American hunters come in and they line up like in the morning to get like concert tickets or whatever to get uh, to buy like a hunting blind for the day. And then, you know, they're they're going out and, you know, uh, filling up the uh you know, the wetland areas and stuff uh, um, by purchasing these hunting blinds. I'm not quite sure how that works. So basically Manitoba resident hunters have been saying that, you know, the outfitters and the American hunters that are coming up, the foreign hunters are intensifying hunting activities. Uh, they're staying longer and they're controlling access to hunting lands and that's hurting Manitoba residents. Apparently, Manitoba waterfowl hunters generate more revenue for the province than the foreign hunters. Um, but the foreign hunters are an important source of re hunting revenue for the province as well. Really interesting thing here, though, a bit of information I got from the Manitoba Wildlife Federation about this was, and I'll see if I can get this right. 
So uh, the statement was, if you want to go to the Manitoba Wildlife Federation's website, sign up for their newsletter. This was published, this is where I got this from, was published in as a statement by the Manitoba Wildlife Federation. In addition, foreign hunters now account for over 50% of the annual duck harvest, while only purchasing one-third of the annual game bird licenses. To top that off, stats show that the vast majority of the foreign hunters are not taking their birds home. And so they're taking away food for resident hunters and indigenous people by simply coming up to hunt as a, as a sport shooting activity and not taking all of the birds that are killed home. Interesting. You know, it's it's kind of a, again, like a, when I kicked off this show about kind of the double-edged sword of some of these like win-lose type scenarios. So the U.S. actually sends a significant amount of money to Canada for waterfall habitat enhancement and protection. That is through the North American waterfowl management plan which is underneath of the migratory uh, international migratory bird treaty of 1919 signed between canada and the u.s so here's the situation for a conservation perspective the u.s knows that the vast majority of north american waterfowl breed and nest in canada in fact the the, the southern prairie pothole region is considered, uh, has been labeled for a long time as the duck factory of North America. So they're helping from a conservation perspective and their hunters have, allowed, have been allowed to come up to Manitoba on freelance hunts. Kind of seems fair, right? You know, they're paying for part of it. They're coming up and they're getting to take advantage of hunting waterfowl, which are being partially paid for by American dollars. However, as I'm understanding the story here is that this thing has grown so big, it's grown into like a money thing and um, it's hurting Manitoba um, hunters who also pay their fair share in conservation for waterfowl in the province of Manitoba uh, as well. And they're losing access to lands both public and private in order to hunt and that's what the part of the new provincial waterfowl modernization strategy has done is leveled out that playing field. The other thing that the modernization strategy did is it's imposed some limits on outfitters in the number of clients that they can have out under their care at any one given time. So freelance hunters come up uh, an outfitter can't just accept dollars and just say, yeah, go wherever you want out there and let as many of them into their lease lands as possible, they're going to limit that because that's part of what the Manitoba hunters have said has been part of the problem. Anyways, that's a lot. That's a lot that's been going on since uh, March. Um, if you got anything to add or say or, or personal knowledge of some of these stories, please Write out, write to me, and uh, I always like to bring uh, some of that local knowledge into some of these stories. I usually do it as a follow-up on a future episode. So, feel free to write me at hcmedia at thehunterconservationist.com. If you're from Manitoba, if you're from Saskatchewan, and know about the coyote stuff or the Northwest Territories and caribou or or whatever, love to hear from you. Anyways, uh, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we'll see you in the next episode.